uh, to Psalm 146. And if you need a Bible, throw your hand in the air, and someone from our connection team will bring you one that you can use for the morning or you can take with you. Uh, Psalms is right in the middle. If you flip the book open right in the middle, you'll probably land in Psalms or close to it. You can just do it a couple times and you'll land in Psalms and then find 146. That's to the back of the, the book of Psalms. Uh, we're embarking on a short series on the Psalms. And so that's where we're going to be. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that day, on that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, and who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come before you now to, to hear from you, really, uh, to hear from your word and that we would understand your word well, that it would uh, shape us and change us and make us into a new people, make us into a renewed people, and constantly be reforming us in accordance with holiness. We pray this morning that you would give my lips the word to speak, give all of us ears to hear. May we be thankful to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, yesterday, uh, you probably heard about this yesterday, we had a scare. Uh, alerts went out all across Hawaii that there was a, a missile directed in their location. Emergency alerts on every television station, on every cell phone in Hawaii, on every radio channel in Hawaii, uh, specifying very clearly this is not a drill that they were, uh, they had detected by U.S. Uh, Pacific Command had detected a missile launch headed their way. They needed to take immediate shelter. And for 38 minutes yesterday morning, Hawaiian time, that's all people knew, was that a missile was perhaps on their way. And obviously in the, in the current context with threats from North Korea and uh, specific mentions of potentially attacking Hawaii or Guam, uh, you can imagine people took this very seriously. People were terrified. People were utterly scared. And it turns out, as most of you probably have heard, it was a, it was a mistake. Someone pushed the wrong uh, set of buttons as a shift change was taking place, and they accidentally alerted an entire state of the United States of an imminent missile attack. And, and while we, we, we 
you know, and, and really it's going to be for the Hawaiian government to figure out what happened and how to fix it. Uh, and, and as they work on that, though, you, you put yourself in their shoes for a minute. And for 38 minutes, uh, and then in the aftermath, you know, the question really becomes, who do you trust? Who do you trust? For 38 minutes, you're at the mercy of, as far as you know, uh, the whims of a reckless dictator and his technological competence. And, and that missile could land anywhere. It could land in the sea. It could land, you know, on Oahu. It could land on Hawaii. It could land on uh, another island. You know, it, uh, it, we don't know. It could land on your house. It could land on a neighbor's house. You have no idea. And, and you have no say in that. You have no control. We live so much of our lives on, on control and, and what we can physically control that we, we get a little nervous when there's pieces of our life that we can't control. Some of us more so than others, but all of us have that to some degree that we need some semblance of control over what we're doing next. And if we lose all control of what's happening next, we usually go to a pretty dark place. And I can't even imagine wondering what is going to happen with this missile because I have no control over that in that situation. No control at all. Whether it lands on my roof or lands in the sea, I don't know. And then, in the aftermath of that, to find out that it was a mistake, to find out that it was an error, that the people that you trust to, to competently relay information to you in a time of crisis failed you. Now can you imagine the situation if, if there was, for real, a launch in the next week, two weeks, month, two months? How many people now, because of that, are going to doubt it, are going are gonna to lack some trust, maybe not act responsibly? Their leaders failed them. And in a way, the consequences are disastrous and will probably be, be long-ranging. Well, against this uh, uh, background, the psalmist behind uh, Psalm 146, we don't know who wrote it, insists that we should praise God because he is absolutely trustworthy. God is absolutely trustworthy. And he makes this point First, by giving a, a summons to praise. And then secondly, he contrasts two potential uh, loci of our trust. Two potential areas where we could sink our trust. Man and God. And then he makes a case for God. And, and, and as he does so, he points to no less than, than ten characteristics that show God's trustworthiness. So we're going to look at this summons to praise. We're going to look at the contrast he draws out, and then we're going to dig in on these characteristics that he uses to make his case. So first, to begin with, let's look at this uh, this summons to praise, this call for us to praise God. If this is the hallmark of each of the last five psalms in the book of Psalms, 146 through 150, and that is this little tiny short series of the psalms. Those are the ones we're going to, to cover. Um, psalm, by the way, is... Uh, it's a distinctively religious word. So maybe we should pause and say what we're talking about. Um, and if you look, most dictionaries will say a psalm is simply a sacred song, a religious song. 
Um, and, and so that's the name we've given to this collection of writings. In English, at least, we call it the Psalms. There's 150 of them in this, in this book. And most of them, if not all of them, were likely set to music. And, and they were designed to be sung. So they're, they're poems um, and they're songs. And we look at poems and, and, and we, you know, we've been reading through some psalms as a family um, since the start of the year. And Micah, my second oldest boy, every night the comment is something like, I still don't see how somebody would sing this, you know. Um, and, uh, well, you know, it doesn't work as well when you translate a song. Um, you know, it, it's like uh, Gangnam style. You know, it just doesn't, you translate it, right? It kind of loses something. It makes less sense than it did when you were just singing it in Korean. But, um, but also, ancient Hebrew poetry is very different than what we think of as English poetry. We are very much interested in rhyme, and we're very much interested in structured meter. Um, and it's not that Hebrew ignores those things, but those aren't primary characteristics of Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is much more about um, putting emphasis on how ideas are strung together. So different cultures, different styles of, of poetry. But each of these last five poems or songs begin exactly the same way. Praise the Lord. And it's actually the Hebrew word hallelujah. And it's a command, right? It's an invitation. The, the psalmist is asking the congregation of the faithful to praise Yahweh. Plural. But then he turns his attention inward. He, he turns his attention on himself and he implores his own self, his own soul. And he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. To which he answers himself, so to speak, that as long as he lives, he will indeed praise the Lord. It's a, it's a reminder for us here at the opening of the psalm that our worship is both individual and it's communal. The psalmist recognizes that he is part of a congregation and the congregation must praise God and each individual in that congregation must praise God. And you know, it goes against our sort of cultural vibe that says worship is about me and we have a tendency to think that it's about my experience in worship and what I get out of worship. Do I like the songs they sang? Do I like the type of music there is? Um, and when we ask those kind of questions, and those questions aren't always entirely off base, but we forget that we're not focusing on the community. And we really can't worship well as individuals unless we're also worshiping as part of a community. And so sometimes the more important questions are, is that a song that we can sing well together? Does that song speak truths that we share together? But I don't want to go too far down that, that road. But it's a, it's a reminder for us. And so rather than asking, what do I contribute to the congregation and the faithful in praising God? We ask questions about what does the congregation bring 
So maybe reform that a little bit. We need both in balance. He says, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. So then say that. The Psalms are for us. And so when he says, I will sing praises, can you say that? Can you can you say that in your heart? Can you say that with your mouth? I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. It's a funny thing that of all the things that are commanded in Scripture, you know, so they always a lot of them are, are very moral things. You, know, you don't murder, you don't kill. But here's one that is it's artistic and it's emotional. And it's commanded in Scripture that we sing to God. I don't care if your voice is bad or not in tune, or you're super, you're, you're superficial about, or not superficial, or you're, uh, um, was it Sub- self-conscious? Yes, thank you, Mark. Um, you're self-conscious about about your voice or whatever. Just encourage you if you're getting self-conscious about your voice. Guess what you're guess what you're thinking about? You're thinking about the one who's singing as opposed to the one you're singing to. So lift up your voices, sing praises all your life. And then the the writer makes this sudden switch in verse three. At least it seems like it, and that's not really what's going on. What's happening here is he's beginning to give the reasons why he is summoning the congregation and his own soul to praise. And he does it by introducing a contrast. Sorry. Um, he does it by introducing a contrast. And the first half of that contrast is in uh, verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, and a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day his plans perish. Now, at first that might not seem, you know, put not your trust in princes. That might not seem very relevant to us. Except for uh, Ben, who's not here, so I'm going to pick on him as our resident Canadian. Uh, he still has a queen. Um, you know, and he's, I'm sure, desperately waiting on William or Harry to take their place. And so um, he has princes. So maybe this is relevant to the Canucks in our crowd. Um, but let me suggest that he's saying more than just that. Although Harry and William would be included. Because the idea behind the term prince is, it appears frequently in the Bible, um, it, it's something like a VIP. The rich and famous. Or as, as one commentator puts it, the influential. Don't put your trust in the influential. It's a, it's a particular vice of our culture and our world that we often cling to important people. Artists, celebrities, politicians. And we want them and hope for them to ultimately rescue us. We, we put our trust in these well-known figures thinking they're going to solve our wrongs. They're going to deliver us from our real or perceived crises uh, and generally make everything okay. To take a recent example, the election of Donald Trump. It might not go the way you think I'm going to go on this. Donald Trump shows just how deep this vice goes in all of our hearts. Because for a sizable portion of the country, Donald Trump is the man who can make America great again who can rescue us from a threatened irrelevancy. And I'm not sorry to tell you that if you believe that, you're gravely mistaken. But there's this other sizable portion of this country that was deeply in for Hillary Clinton, and many saw her particularly as representing the ascendancy of women 
In fact, Ms. Clinton was preparing to give her victory speech under the, the glass ceiling of the Javits Center. And when she ultimately lost, many of her supporters were despondent. They had placed their trust in her, and, and she had ultimately been taken from them. And in their fear of Donald Trump, well, we, we can look at it this way. The, you know, the fear of man is not so different from the trust of man, is it? Because both absolute fear and absolute trust give undue respect to a mere human being. And I think these dual reactions, and it wasn't everybody in our country, but there's a lot of people in our country that either were, were, were so uh, in love with this idea that we could make America great again and Donald Trump's going to fix everything, he's going to drain the swamp, or they were on the other side of that and you know, all hope is lost now because Hillary lost the election. What, what, and, and I hope that maybe you're not on either side of that, but maybe maybe you are on one side of that. And, and I'm telling you, both of those things you, you're gravely mistaken about. And I think I think the dual reactions that we had to the election of Donald Trump show how pervasive it is our desire to pin our hopes for deliverance on the influential. We want somebody to swoop in and fix it all. And when we lose that hope, we grow in despair. And, and that's just a, you know, a recent example. Uh, and, and you can go back to Obama, and you can go back to George W. Bush, and you can um, you see similar things. But the influential, whoever they are in our society, are just sons of man in whom there is no salvation. Influential or not, everyone takes a final breath and we return to the dust from which we were made. When I was growing up in Illinois, it was a, a popular field trip. It feels like we went every year, but I know that can't have been true. Every year, though, it seemed like we went to Springfield. We went to Springfield, Illinois, the capital, and we would see a lot of different sites, but, but the most important attractions were all centered around the life of Abraham Lincoln. We would see Abraham Lincoln's home that he lived in, where his children grew up with his wife, Mary Todd. And uh, we would see the old legislature building, and we could see where Abraham Lincoln's seat was in the state legislature and, and where he, the desk that he lobbied for bills from and, and the crowd. And, 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 and we would go, of course, to his tomb. It's a beautiful tomb. Uh, it's a gorgeous construction. It's neat. You walk you know, past the sarcophaguses, and um, some of the children are buried there. And in an odd twist of fate, fate um, though I've never lived here in Cleveland before I moved here, um, and I've, I've not known any family members who made a permanent home in the Cleveland area. Nonetheless, about two miles from here and less than a mile from my own house, there is a grave whose marker has been swallowed by time and by soil. And, and therein lies the, the, whatever remains of Henry Braddon, my great, great, great grandfather, a Cleveland resident buried less than a mile from my house. And though they're different, Abraham Lincoln and Henry Braddon are different in their fame and, and in the trappings of their burial, 
both of them, one known to every man and woman and child born in this country and half the rest of the world, and, and one known only to me and a few other people on this dusty planet. Nonetheless, both of those people are continuing an inevitable journey to dirt. And that's the end of both the influential and the, the uninfluential. The psalmist actually has a, a play of words here. It's easy to miss in, in English, but I think it sets up his next point nicely. So I want to point it out to you. The, the Hebrew word for man is, is Adam. Adam. Adam was the, the first man, and, and the word for a human being generally, uh, it got its name because God formed him from the ground, the Adama. So Adam came from the Adama. And so ground and man uh, come from the, the same root word in Hebrew. And so when the psalmist says, don't put your trust in the son of a, a, uh, Adam, in whom there is no salvation, when, when his breath departs, he returns to the Adama. And, and so he, in bringing up that word play, he is drawing the reader back to creation and to the fall and the beginnings of it all. God cursed mankind at the fall and said, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And there's this very somber note to the end of verse 4 that this happens when? It happens on the day that its plans perish. And it, it's strange to think about it, but every one of us, on the, on the day we die, wakes up with ideas in our mind of what we're going to do that day. Or if we're one of those people we think are privileged to die in their sleep, then we went to bed the night before with dreams and visions of you know, the errands I was going to run tomorrow, the, the things I was going to accomplish, the goals I had in mind. But death stamps out every last plan, doesn't it? So though it's not the, the point of the particular this particular poem, it should be a nice reminder to each of us to make use of the time that we have, not knowing when that day might be. On the contrary, though, the very opposite of that says in verse 5, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. These two lines say essentially the same thing. The God of Jacob or, or Israel is the Lord, is Yahweh. The one God who is above all other claimants. Blessedness is, is closely connected to happiness. And, and sometimes the, the word blessed is translated happy. And the Bible would argue that the connection between happiness and, and trust in God is not precisely that God acts in such a way that produces happiness in you, although that's sometimes true, but that's not really how the Bible paints that relationship. Rather, the Bible would suggest that we are generally happy when we trust God because God himself provides us and is our greatest joy. And so when we are given to trust in him, we bathe in that joy that is God himself. And when we 
fail to trust him, we're removing ourselves from that source of joy. And so the message here for the psalmist isn't, be happy, you Christian. But rather, your lack of joy and happiness could be evidence, could be evidence that you're not trusting in God. But why? Why should I trust in God? Why is the psalmist urging us to trust in God? Well, here's where he gives us this incredible list of characteristics of God that demonstrate his trustworthiness. He gets going, and, and it's almost as if he forgets that he's trying to give us the grounding or the reason for, for trusting God, and he just slips into praising God, naming off his attributes and characteristics which are worthy of celebration. Because that's really what praise is, right? When you, when you praise a coworker, or you, you praise your child, you're, you're saying, here's this great quality you have, or something you did was, was excellently done, right? You are... You're naming off things that are well about that person uh, and offering them accolades. And so that's what, what praise is. And so the grounds for trusting in God uh, become synonymous with reasons and things to praise God about. And, and so it, it kind of marries between those two things. Um, and so, like I said, there, there's almost at least 10 of these things. And, and we're gonna we're gonna hit them all kind of in brief and try and get the the big picture. The first one he says uh, he is the God who made the universe. That that's essentially the meaning of the first part of verse six. And you can see the connection there with this is why I wanted to point it out with the man created from the dust of the earth. It was God who made him. So why trust in man? Why trust in a human being when you can trust the one who made the man? Why would you trust anything in this universe when you can trust the one who made the universe? I don't know for sure that for sure, all the, the interviews haven't come out, but I'd be willing to bet my life savings that yesterday morning, somewhere in Hawaii, there was a Christian family that got the news and was at peace. It wasn't that they weren't concerned. It wasn't that they, they, they didn't take action. But I guarantee you, there was a Christian family, a Christian couple, a Christian single in Hawaii who was at peace because they weren't trusting the Hawaiian officials with the information, and they weren't trusting the U.S. military to protect them from this missile. And they didn't need to feel like they had control of their life. And so the sense of feeling out of control by this missile coming was not an issue because they trusted the God who made the atoms and the protons and neutrons and quarks that made up the individual pieces of the missile. And they said, what do I have to fear? What do I have to fear? I trust the man, the person, not the man, the person who made these things possible. Second, God is the one who keeps faith forever. Other translations have uh, God remains faithful. But I like the idea of keeping faith uh, better, even if it's a bit more awkward, because 
we shouldn't be thinking that God remains faithful to his nature or that he remains faithful to his, his character, although that's true. I don't think that's what the psalmist is trying to say. He's trying to say that God keeps faith. He, he enters into relationships with his created one, and he keeps his end of the deal. It's a fundamental characteristic of God that he keeps his end of the deal. And the fact that there's a deal, in the very loosest sense of the term, means he's in relationship with what he's created. So he's not high and above us and having nothing to do with us, but he is intimately engaged in the affairs of this universe. And he keeps his end of the bargain. He keeps his end of the deal even when we do not. And so Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.13, as, as Candace read earlier, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He's trustworthy because he keeps faith. Third, he executes justice for the oppressed. In the Old Testament, a good ruler is often portrayed as one who executes justice, particularly in the case of those who are in a position of weakness. And, and just to... Justice has become such the, the, the buzzword in the last uh, five, ten years, more than, more than ever. Uh, justice, I think, broadly speaking in the Scriptures, you can say justice is proportionality, fairness, getting what you deserve, not getting what you don't deserve. Um, it, it's proportionality, getting your due. And God executes justice on behalf of the oppressed. Well, who are the oppressed? And I, and I found it interesting, if you look through the Bible and you look at all the places where it talks about the oppressed, it is very often, maybe even the vast majority of cases, that the oppressed are those who have been economically harmed. Often, not always, but often because uh, of being in a disadvantaged position. It almost always involves a power play. Where one party uses his strength to effectively take from the finances of the weaker person. That can be a momentary thing, like in the case of a robbery. You break into somebody's house, you take something, uh, you oppressed them. You, you stole of their finances and you used a momentary position of strength to take advantage of their momentary position of weakness. Uh, but oftentimes it can be ongoing and systemic, uh, like withholding wages of, of hired workers. Uh, it can be both personal, it can be systemic. King Solomon put it this way in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. We could certainly spend some time on the oppressors this morning. But it's not the primary focus of the passage. And so I'll, I'll mostly leave that for another Sunday. But, but God is the one who executes justice on behalf of the oppressed. And I think what he's saying is, He's saying more than just wait and be patient because God will fix that. Because God 
doesn't promise to fix everything in this life, but he will execute justice. And I think to go a step further, I think whenever and wherever you see a semblance of justice, even a hint of justice, even a modicum of justice in this uh, perverse and unjust world, it's the hand of God that has brought it. Because we, we even still, we're, we're created in God's image. We have the imprint of our maker on us. And, and there is a part of us, I think, that, that is still it yearns to be like what we were made to be. And so we yearn for justice, even though justice is far away. Fourth, he feeds the hungry. And, and what he is saying is not so much that there will never be hunger. All right, this, the, the psalmist is writing in in the agricultural Bronze Age of famines and, and pestilence, no fertilizers and things like that. Uh, and so I don't think the psalmist is so naive. He's not saying that there will never be hunger. Certainly he was familiar with hunger, starvation and death, uh, more than any of us are. But what he is saying is that every morsel of food that relieves even the faintest bit of hunger is a gift from the hand of the Almighty God. That coffee, that tea in the back, uh, or, or even uh, the eggs you ate for breakfast, or, or even if your last meal was yesterday, or two days ago, or three days ago. Whatever you ate, however much you ate, the difference between nothing and that something that you had is God at work. He does that. And then the psalmist seems to uh, be rising to a climax and, and, he, and he can't help himself. And, and he blurts out uh, in, in verse uh, 7. Uh, excuse me, verse, well, yeah, the end of verse 7 and then into verse 8. It says, Yahweh, the Lord. And it's arguable that these aren't even complete sentences here. We're, 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 you know, our English translations do the best they can with them. Um, but they're more like an emphatic continuation of the, of the previous section. You know, uh, the Lord who sets the prisoners free. The Lord who opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh who lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh who loves the righteous. Yahweh who loves or who watches over the sojourners. And, and, and so these almost become like titles of God here. And it's been pointed out that that the language here is very similar to the language in Isaiah 61, which is in turn is the language that Jesus picked up on to describe his own ministry. And you might say that these descriptors, these titles of God here, find their fullest realization in the person of Jesus. Let's take a look at him. Yahweh sets prisoners free. It means probably at least two things. Uh, he corrects injustices to free those undeserving of being in prison. But also, he shows mercy on those who do deserve to be in prison. And he frees those who do not even deserve to be let out. And perhaps that's the most impressive of the two. especially when we realize that not all imprisonment in this life 
is at the Cuyahoga County Jail. Not all of imprisonment in this life is at a supermax or at Guantanamo Bay. But scripture teaches us that we are imprisoned and enslaved to our own desires. And that imprisonment is a result of our sinfulness, our rebellion against God. And we can allow ourselves to be enslaved and imprisoned to all sorts of things that never realize themselves in true hope or true deliverance, whether that be uh, the influential, some celebrity or politician or great thinker that we put our stock in, or it's our career, or whether it's a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or fiance, or whether it's our family, um, even things that are actually very good and are gifts from God can be perverted and turned into something evil. And, and the distinction is the way you know when a good thing has become evil in your heart is when instead of the good thing then being a platform for you to praise God for his goodness, the good thing becomes the thing itself you're trying to protect. What, what I mean is, if the thing that you should want to protect is, is the relationship with God, if he is the one that, in whom you find your greatest joy, your greatest delight, and your greatest pleasure, then you trust him that everything else will be good around that and outside of that. When you take the things that he graciously gives you and, and you, instead of having this posture of, of thankfulness, you know, that he's placed this good thing in your hands, which then he can also remove it very easily, right? But when we start to go like this and clutch it and protect it and, and say, I, I'm not letting anything in here. I've got a hold of this now. And, and so this is no longer an offering up to God. What God has put in my hands, I offer up to God as a way to praise Him. But no, now I clutch it and I hold on to it and I lock it down. And if those things need to be removed and they have to be removed through your clenched fists, it is going to hurt. It's going to hurt badly. And, and, and that really is, I think, the distinction between whether we're holding things rightly as a gift from God or, or whether we're holding things to selfishly possess them. And so, sure, lots of evil things can be here, but lots of good things can be distorted and twisted and warped as well. And what's funny is though we think that we are grasping hold of those things and we are binding those things to us, the truth of the matter is, is that they are really binding us. Extend the analogy a little bit further. Um, uh, sometimes I have a bad habit. I pass it on to my oldest boy. I try to do too many things at one time. Like, I, I don't want to let down. Like, I don't want to stop reading what I'm reading, but I want to get my cup of coffee. So, you know, I'll be reading and I'm trying to get my coffee without really paying attention to it, you know, or, you know, it, it, you know inevitably something's going to go wrong, right? 
It seems like I'm saving time and I'm being more efficient, but the reality is it slows everything down and I have a high likelihood of disaster striking. And, and so it seems like I'm getting everything I want, but the reality is, is that like if I'm trying to like hold my phone out because I'm trying to like finish this article I'm reading here while I'm doing something else, it's actually right, it, it's hindering me, it's binding me, it's holding me back from being able to use, you know, two hands on this job or have my attention focused on this job. And so the thing that I'm clutching onto is actually, in many ways, it's clutching onto me. It's binding me and I'm in prison to it. We are enslaved to the trappings of this world far too often. Christ, in his goodness, can free a person from the trappings of this world. And though we were slaves of sin, Christians have been set free from the shackles of that slavery that we might freely serve a new and good master, Jesus Christ. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Literally, when there's healing, by whatever means, God is the healer. Um, Literally, doing the miraculous, Jesus, Jesus himself opened the eyes of the blind. But also, it's God who opens up the eyes of the spiritually blind, uh, of those who are unable to see the goodness of his greatness and the greatness of his goodness. That we are jaded by the hardness of our hearts and we don't even recognize God for who he is. It is God who opens those eyes to see. He lifts the bowed down and being bowed down is almost exclusively figurative of being humbled, either uh, uh, being forced into that position or by being broken down you know, by the, the perils of life. But either, either way, in either case, however you've been brought low, however you've been broken, God is the one who lifts them up. And so it is with Jesus. He, he, he calls us up from our low places. And so the Apostle Paul can write, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were princes. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And here's the funny thing about the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the good news that God saves sinners, that though we're, we're wicked, we love a God who loves wicked people and rescues wicked people and restores them into relationship with him. But he can't lift you up if you're not down. And so the, the proper response to, to recognizing God's goodness is faith and, and repentance, belief and repentance. It's 
um, trusting in God as we're talking about and turning our back on our old ways of life and confessing agreement with God that yes, the things I've been doing and the way I've been conducting my life apart from you has been selfish and sinful and I reject that now, God, and I and I turn to you in trust and faith. We have to be broken. We have to be low. We have to be bowed down in order to be lifted up. The Lord loves the righteous, which, you know, we think, well, of course he does. Who wouldn't? But isn't that sort of the, the antithesis of our human sources of trust? Because if we really, if we really boil it down, you know, um, we have an idea of who we think people are. We think, especially when we think about the influential. We have an idea of who we think they are. You know, and what kind of person they are. And, you know, we don't know him. We've never had a conversation with him. Maybe we had a, you know, hey, would you sign this for me? Oh, yeah, thanks, man. No, he was cool, man. He was cool. He was, like, happy to sign the autograph. So we think it's a good dude. We don't know what he's like or he's like, you know. We don't we don't know how they conduct their life. We don't know like, what they're like with their spouse or with, with their mom and dad or with their kids. We don't know these people. So we construct an image of who we think they are. But isn't it isn't it so true that so often, the more you get to know someone, the more you know their bad side, right? That's why that's why marriage is challenging, right? Because you know you go out on a date, you know if they're not a complete jerk, you know they look pretty good, right? And then you know a couple weeks in, they still look pretty good, but until you commit to a lifetime with a person, you you, you really you you don't know who they are, and and they're going to surprise you in some ways about maybe how good they are, but also they're going to surprise you in some ways about how bad they are. And we don't know who these people are. I think if we're, we make an honest appraisal, look, these guys we put our hope in, these gals we put our hope in, they're bad people. I'm not saying that to, to, to slam them. I'm saying that as, a, as a, a statement of fact and reality because I'm a bad person. You're a bad person. I know, that, I mean, that sounds crazy, but but too often I live my life in rebellion against God. Too often I try to live my life according to my plan, according to my purposes, and according to the way I think it should be done, rather than uh, uh, accepting the, the architect and maker's plan for my life and this universe. That is a, a type of rebellion that's deeply wicked. And so this is really is the opposite of what we normally do. God loves the righteous, and our human sources of trust usually aren't there. But here's the, the, the thing. that God loves the righteous, yes, but he's also the one who makes us righteous. Because elsewhere it's written, no one is righteous. No, not one. And yet Paul said, as we just read, Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus becomes righteousness for the sinner. When the sinner responds to Christ in faith and trust, the sinner is accepting that Jesus' death on the cross pays the sin debt that each of us owes to God. And so Jesus becomes our righteousness and by becoming incorporated into Christ. 
God looks at us and says, righteous, not on the basis of what I have done, but on the basis of what Christ did for me. And so in this interesting paradox, God loves the righteous, but God also is the one who makes them righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners and keeps the orphan and the widow. You can say a lot here. We're going to say a lot more about that subject next week in Psalm 147. The broken and weak of society God keeps. These, these three are often mentioned together because they are three people that in ancient Near Eastern society would have been in a very perilous uh, day-to-day, hour-to-hour uh, type of existence. The sojourner is the person who has come from another country. They are probably temporarily uh, in another country. At least they don't have a homeland at that point. And so they are, so to speak, wandering. And you know, the person probably doesn't know where they're going to land. And, and so in, in the context especially of the ancient Near East where uh, society was very uh, uh, familial and, and patriarchal and, and everything is centered around the family, and around the clan, then it was obviously very desperate circumstances that would cause a person to leave their homeland and go to another land. And it also means that they are without all the provisions that that would su- supply. And, and so God routinely admonishes his people that those people who are displaced need special protection. The uh, fatherless is um, the, the one who... Uh, doesn't have a father, doesn't have parents, the orphan, the widow. Um, Again, in a very patriarchal society, uh, your connection to the resources of the land is through uh, the male head of your household. And so if you are a widow, you are in a potentially perilous situation because there is not a husband who can access the resources of the land on your behalf. That doesn't mean the women had no power in that society. It wasn't uh, always like that, but it was uh, a desperate situation. You know, your best hope was uh, remarriage, but, you know, you're probably an older woman at that point, and, uh, you know, that's then harder to find a husband. And, you know, it's a difficult situation. And so God admonishes the people to care for them. The, the orphans are, you know, if, if they're... Um, if they live long enough that they come adulthood, then they can marry and re- enter society. But if they, again, if they don't have that, that, that familial connection that connects them to the resources of their society, they are in a very desperate situation. And that one we certainly can understand much more clearly in our present context um, how an orphan would be in a desperate uh, situation. The, the point is that these three are representative groups. They're representative groups that um, of people who are significantly outside the ordinary protection of society. And people are, God's people are called to have a particular care for them. But never mind that to the extent that they are kept, to the, step, to the extent that they are protected and watched over, it is God 
who does that? And for those of us who are Christians, who are in Christ, we, we feel this, or at least we should feel this very, um, very clearly and, and deeply in our hearts that we are sojourners, that we have a homeland, that we have a home country that's not here. It's not this world. It's not the mechanisms and, and machinations of this life. But it, we have a heavenly home. And, and we have a yearning to return there. And a, a yearning to be in the provisions of our homeland. And we wander in this life. But we have the promise of a homeland. And God is watching us. We've been given a new father. And, and we recognize that the fathers of this, of this world, whether they are good or whether they are bad, whether we regard them as evil or we, we regard them as, as friendly and wonderful and nice, nonetheless, we've been given a new father who's better in every conceivable way from our earthly biological father and, and who gives us, uh, you know, provides for us and cares for our needs and takes care of us as his, as his children. We're given a new husband. The church is given husband, Christ himself, cares for us, makes us better than we were before, makes us more holy, makes us more righteous, constantly is shaping us and preparing us to enter his new home. And so we have better promises to Christ. flip side is the way of the wicked. Perhaps the psalmist even has in mind, in particular, the one who neglects these groups. God sees that as well and brings them to ruin. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a day on which God executes justice finally. And those who are righteous, not by what they do, again, because the heart is desperately wicked. Who can trust it? No one is righteous. No, not one. That includes me. But those who are made righteous on the basis that Christ's work will be received into eternal life, and those who are not, who are numbered among the wicked, will be destroyed. And the psalmist closes, The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. In contrast to the man who's returning to dust and decaying, whether it's Henry Braddon or whether it's Abraham Lincoln, the Lord God is reigning. He is king. So he has the authority to do all these things that he is doing, and he will do it forever. And so the psalmist can only conclude, again, hallelujah, praise the Lord. So the challenge then for us, and where are we putting our trust? For the person who's not a Christian or, or might not be a Christian or isn't sure what it means to be a Christian, the, the real question that you need to ask yourself is where is the locus of your faith? Because you have faith whether you recognize it or not. And so is the locus of your faith, the locus of your trust, going to be in yourself? Is it going to be in your family? Is it going to be in the influential? Is it going to be in um, man in one way, shape, or form? Or is your locus going to be in God? 
It's, it's the opportunity for you. But even for the Christian, this side of eternity, we struggle with this. Right? We, we fight against our sinfulness and our wickedness, which, which wants to continue to pull us to trust in God. And, and it's, it's essential that we remind self, remind each other. This is why we, we read psalms and we sing psalms. And, and even you know, in the context of the psalm, we're singing to each other. And we're, we're, as a congregation, we're reminding each other of these facts. God's got this, that, that God is completely trustworthy. He is worthy of all of our trust. And he gives us every reason to believe he's trustworthy. And we can let go of the things that we're still trying to hold on to. Offer them. Offer them back for his purposes, his work, his will, his praise. Let's pray and then continue to sing praise to him. Father, we confess that we are often uh, at a loss of trust in you. We don't trust you as we ought to trust you. Sometimes we don't trust you at all. We are the people who honor you with our lips, and yet our hearts are far from you. We say Christian with our mouth, but we say the world with our hearts. We say our career with our hearts. We say my family with my heart. We say my spouse with my heart. My hobby with my heart. Show us, God, uh, where we are clinging to the trappings of this world instead of receiving them as good gifts. Uh, convict us of the places that we need to, to continue to let go of idolatrous and, and greedy desires. And that we would trust you with whatever life throws our way because it's not a mysterious energy, it's not a, um, it's not a whimsical fate, but it is your hand directing the universe and it is a good hand and we can trust it. And, and God, I pray for those uh, who may not know yet of your goodness and your power and your love, that they would see in you a better way, a better ruler, a better king, a better leader. And that their hearts would desire above all to have peace with you. And that they would turn their trust on you in faith and repentant. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing praises.